You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. Today, we're joined by David Harris, who's well-known in the Indianapolis community, especially in the education community. Currently, he's a partner with the City Fund. We're going to talk about that and a lot of other things with this true Hoosier pioneer who's done so much to change the lives of so many young people. But we're joined today by Danielle Shockey, who's CEO of the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana and has an extensive, amazing education background. Danielle, take it away. All right. So for the leaders and legends listeners, um, Robert mentioned education. So we know that that's one, one of the things you're into or the main thing. But give us a little bit more of the bio. Who is David Harris? Why do you think maybe you were invited on to Leaders and Legends? What is the city fund and what is the mind trust and how, do, how are they connected? Yeah, so uh, I'm a native Indianapolisan. I grew up uh, and lived here my whole life. Um, went to college out of state, but then came back and went to IU for law school and went to work for Baker and Daniels. Uh, and shortly after I started as a young associate at Baker and Daniels, I met with Bart Peterson, who was thinking about running for mayor and uh, asked if I would be interested in getting involved in his campaign. I said, absolutely. Uh, and he said there were two areas of interest that he really wanted to explore early, crime and education, and told me to pick one. I said, well, I, I don't know, education. Uh, and he asked me to write a paper about charter schools, which I don't think at the time I'd ever heard of, uh, but just quickly got very passionate about charter schools specifically and about education and education reform, got very involved in his campaign for mayor. He got elected, and then he became the first mayor in the country to get chartering authority. And so... Uh, he asked me to build that office out, uh, which we did. I think the the model of having a mayor as a charter school authorizer is by far the best model in the country. Unfortunately, it hasn't been replicated very much. Uh, but it's been, I think, a big reason why the charter sector here is so successful. Um, and um, one of the things that uh, we wanted to be able to continue to do was to grow the charter sector, but also to infect, affect the overall education system. So about five years into leading the charter work for the mayor, we launched the Mind Trust, which is a nonprofit that uh, incubates new schools and nonprofits, helps attract teacher talent and principal talent to the community, and engages the community around this work. Uh, and I think that really put the city in a position to drive some substantial education reforms over the last 15 years, uh, including putting together what was a plan for what we now have our innovation network schools, kind of charter schools inside of districts. Uh, today, 50% of kids inside the pub public school kids inside the Indianapolis public school boundaries are in an alternative type of public school, either a charter school or an innovation network school where the educators are really empowered to make decisions. Uh, so our education landscape looks very different than it did 20 years ago. 
but more importantly, it's a lot better. And so if you look at the performance of the charter schools and the innovation network schools, they're significantly outperforming traditional district schools, uh, which is not to say they're good enough. We need to continue to get better, but they are making big, big strides forward. Um, and so had a chance to do that for 12 years. And then about a year ago, left to join the city fund, which is largely a philanthropic organization, but we are pretty active investors. We take board seats in the organizations that we invest in, and we want to find cities like Indianapolis where we, we think there's a potential not just to create good schools, but to reshape the public education system in, into a much better way to serve um, typically, historically underserved kids. So it's, it's been talked about widely, um, the success of Indianapolis. So what do you think was a part of the foundation of the success? What made us ripe and ready as a city? What do you think um, happened legislatively? What, were the, what are the parts of the recipe that made Indianapolis have this, this level of success that we now have today? Yeah. So first of all, I mean, I would say that there's not a city in the country that is in a better position to really remake its public education system than Indianapolis right now. It's really extraordinary. And I think it's a combination of many factors and many people. Uh, One, we've had some terrific political leaders in this community, Uh, starting really with Mayor Goldsmith, who put education at the center of what a mayor mayor's job is, then followed by my boss and really my political hero, Bart Peterson, who had the courage to take on the role of really being a, not only a champion for uh, charter schools, but being the one that is authorizing those. And and we all know the political complications, particularly as a Democrat and doing that great leaders in the legislature, Teresa Lubbers, championed charter legislation for seven years until she finally got it done. Uh, And so, one, we've had great political leaders. The mayors that have succeeded, Mayor Peterson, have used that authority very well. Mayor Ballard, in addition to being a charter champion, also went to the legislature to get the Innovation Network School law passed, which is hugely important and and valuable to have a mayor playing that role. Uh, We've had also great civic leadership. And the quality of the people and the organizations that have gotten involved, particularly as board members on both the charter schools and these innovation network schools has made an enormous difference. I always, when I talk about the Indianapolis story around the country, I always say kind of one of our secret weapons is the caliber of civic leaders that have gotten on the boards of these charter schools and they're governed by boards. That's how their decisions are made day to day. And so um, that's hugely important. I think having a really strong nonprofit sector that drove change over a sustained period of time is also important. Uh, People get frustrated with education reform, and so they give up pretty quickly. Uh, And one of the things that I always tell people, it's not a sprint, it's not even a marathon, it's an ultra marathon. I mean, to get real change takes a long time. And we've had folks here who've really been at it for a while. And that's one of the keys, I think, to our success. And before we go too many more questions, because I, I could have 100, and I'm sure Robert does as well, describe for the listeners what is the nuanced difference between a charter school and an innovation school. Um, and then also you mentioned having a mayor support the system by having their own innovation authorization or charter school authorization body. Yeah. Um, why is that uniquely different, and why would you be recommending that to other mayors? 
So maybe I'll start with that question. So Indianapolis is unique that the person uh, who is granting the charter in Indianapolis is the mayor. A charter school is a public school, but it is unaffiliated with a school district. And so it is public in, in, every, in any way you can think about a school being public other than it's not part of a school district. Um, and in a lot of places around the country, the chartering entity is some sort of statewide body that nobody really knows who's in charge of. And the result of those statewide bodies is mixed. Uh, in some places, they're very good, but in some places, they're not very good. Uh, to me, the thing that really is an advantage of having the mayor play this role is the person who's making the decisions about schools is directly accountable to the families in those schools. So if the school doesn't perform, you don't have to f figure out who to blame 400 miles away. You know it's the mayor, and that creates an incentive for the mayor to be rigorous in both the upfront screening of applications and the ongoing accountability. Uh, and one of the things that's been interesting about the mayor playing this role when, the, when it was being debated in the legislature, people said, don't give this authority to the mayor. They'll just award charters to their political friends and they'll never close a school per per performance because they won't want to make anybody mad. And the opposite has been true because the mayors are accountable. They have to answer for how these schools do. And mayors here, all three mayors that have had this authority have been more aggressive in closing underperforming schools than any authorizer in the country. Um, and so, and then the second question is an innovation network school An innovation network school operates very much like a charter school. It's fully autonomously run at the school level. So the principal makes all decisions about budgeting and curriculum and staffing and calendar and who to purchase services from and all of those types of things. Um, they have a nonprofit board that governs their day-to-day -day operations, but they are part of a school district. And really the only district in the state that's used this law meaningfully is the Indianapolis Public Schools. And so all of these innovation network schools that are launching in Indianapolis are autonomous schools. So they have the conditions that allow the educators to excel, but they're part of the district. And so they get access to district facilities and transportation and services. It's kind of the best of all worlds. Uh, and it's proving to be incredibly successful. When you point to a school in Indianapolis and you say, this is success, what is one or two of those schools that you say, you know what, if I'm going to bring people to visit Indianapolis, where do you take them? So if it's a charter school, it might be Paramount or Heron uh, that are both fabulously successful. One is an elementary school. Uh, Paramount is probably the most successful elementary school in the state serving um, economically disadvantaged kids. Heron is one of the top high schools in the country, as uh, reported by several national publications. Um, if you're talking about an innovation network schools, there are a lot of great options there. Uh, Global Prep a, a Preparatory Academy was launched by uh, Mariama Shahid, who was a former Pike Township teacher and principal who had this vision for creating a dual language immersion school for low-income kids. Before her school, if you wanted to have that experience, you had to send your kid to the international school. Great school, great option for the community, but not available to a lot of people. Uh, and so she had this big vision and had a chance to launch it through this law. Now it's doing great things. It was a the school she took over was dramatically underperforming. Um, she kept the same kids. The school, she kept the kids in the building. Everything else is new. Uh, and they've made enormous strides in a short period of time. 
Uh, Edison School for the Arts is an innovation network school that was an existing school within IPS, and the existing leadership decided that they wanted to have the same autonomy and freedoms that some of these other innovation network schools, so they made a transition of the leadership in that school, uh, made the transition into an innovation network schools, and they've already, even though they were high-performing schools, seen improvements. Um, So those are just two of many examples. So we've talked a lot about the great successes, and there are many, many, many. If you look back on this road, you know, yeah. 2001 to today, and as you're now, it sounds like you're in an opportunity to take other cities down the same path. Um, were there any lessons learned, things that you would do differently? Because there still is a bit of, I would say, misunderstanding, potentially misconception, um, even in our own community around why, you know, this you know disparity of dollars, taking money from a traditional public school. And, I mean, these are things and themes we hear. So like, again, is there anything you would do differently to help so that the community is well prepared for the inclusion of charter or innovation schools? Yeah, so you're talking about money being taken from the traditional schools. I think by far the best thing that ever happened to IPS were charter schools because it forced them to behave uh, in a different way. Think about the trajectory that IPS was on. Uh 20 years ago and where it is today. It's a model for the nation. Our great superintendent, Dr. Farabee, just left to go be the chancellor and the D.C. public schools, maybe the highest profile district in the country, or at least one of the handful of them. Imagine any of our his predecessors being on that pathway. You just couldn't even conceive of that. In terms of mistakes, obviously a lot of mistakes made. Um, I'll just start at the very beginning. Uh, when When Mayor Peterson got chartering authority, there was a lot of confusion and misinformation about the charters. I wish we had spent six months just going around the city explaining what charter schools are so that people had a better understanding when they got launched and that we could answer questions, most of which were based on misinformation. I think we did do that when the Innovation Network Schools law passed. The mayor's office, the Mind Trust, and IPS all went out and held, I think, a dozen community sessions to explain what the schools, what, what an innovation network school is. And there was all this confusion, understandable confusion. You say they've got their own nonprofit board. How does that relate to the IPS board and all of those kinds of things? Um, and so I wish we had done that more when we we had, I wish we had done that when we launched the charter schools and generally done a better job of engaging the community. I think that's now been a priority of the Mind Trust and um, other folks that are in this space. Uh, but that was not something that was a priority at the beginning, and, and it should have been. And this is my own personal commentary. Having been a school administrator during that time period, there was a lot of change happening all at the same yeah. time. There was state accountability being added. There was new teacher evaluation systems. There was the inclusion of... Ch- I mean, there was just a lot going on that I think the public wasn't sure what to listen or look at. One one of the things that you'd hear is that the education reformers were attacking teachers. mm -hmm. You you hear this a lot about um, Mitch Daniels and Barack Obama, who were both big champions of charters and education reform. They were, you know, this is an assault on teachers. When the reality is absolutely the opposite. What charters and innovation network schools are all about is empowering educators in the building so that they're making decisions. They're the folks that are closest to the kids in the building. They're the best position to make good decisions um, rather than some bureaucrat in a central office trying to dictate something from afar. Uh, And yet this narrative out there that this was somehow an attack on teachers got 
some residents because we didn't do a very good job of explaining what our purpose was and, and what our goal was. One of the things that's different in Indianapolis today versus a lot of other cities is because a lot of this work now is um, in partnership with IPS and through the Innovation Network Schools, a lot of the folks that are leading this change are traditional district teachers and educators. And they have, I think, been really effective in communicating what really is happening in these schools. And I think that's why you see so little pushback relative to other cities. So again, I said earlier, 50% of kids are in non-traditional, uh, nonprofit governed public schools. Uh, over a third of IPS are these innovation network schools today. And yet there's not a lot of pushback. Of course, there's some criticism, but there's not a lot of pushback. And in other cities, they'll launch a single school and there'll be protests and pickets and all of those kinds of things. And I think a big part of it is that it's be, being done in partnership with a lot of folks who've been traditional educators and they're helping to communicate what this is really about. I want to let Robert have some voice here. Mine won't be much different than yours. Uh, and I defer to you. For those listening, Danielle's education background is simply phenomenal, and she's going to take the lead for most of this podcast and some others that we have coming up with with women leaders like uh, Sue Elsperman, who heads Ivy Tech, and Lieutenant Governor Suzanne Crouch, and Congresswoman Susan Brooks, and a lot more. We've got a terrific lineup of guests coming up in the next several months. And just want to remind you that Leaders and Legends is Presented by Veteran Strategies, we're a local veteran business enterprise. We're sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Our good friend Aaron Shaler, who's a mortgage broker with Grandview Lending, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You got your undergrad, David, at Northwestern. Yes. Do only people who go to Northwestern get to call it Nerdwestern? <laughs> You know, I've heard a lot of different ways of describing it. I haven't heard that, but maybe that's because people say it behind my back. Well, you know, this incredibly engaging and wonderful and brilliant PR person I know named Francesca Brady, <laughs> who went to Nerd Western, as yes. she called it, she gave me the hint. Uh, and well, you so, know, did, I, so did Amos Brown, actually. Amos Brown and I would laugh about it. Francesca worked at the Mind Trust. I know she did. That's why that's my very first question. <laughs> We did a lot in a short period of time relative to other cities in Indianapolis. Unigov, we had the sports sort of strategy to grow the city in multiple ways. It seems like education and what needed to happen in the realm of education took a lot longer than maybe it should have. What do you attribute that to? We're happy to be where we are, but you know what? What we started doing, and by that I mean the city general in the early 2000s, was being done in sports and downtown and other places and government reform decades before. Why did it take so long, do you think? The politics of education and education reforms is very, very difficult. There's no opposition to a sports strategy or some of the other strategies that we've pursued as a city. It still took great leadership. It took visionary leadership. And we're lucky that we had those people. But there is a powerful force that's trying to keep the education system that we have in place. 
And I remember when I got involved and uh, people told Mayor Peterson, you're crazy for wanting to get into middle of education. It's it's so much downside and really little upside. Um, fortunately, the Mayor Goldsmith kind of dove head first into education. And so it became part of the expectation of what a mayor did. Um, but it's it's politically very difficult. And there are you know, the teachers unions and others are powerful forces that have strong views on what should happen. And so it's just, it's hard to make change. You mentioned the politics of it. And I wanted to ask about that. Um, And I guess I should go through a whole list of disclosures. So uh, I directed the IPS referenda in 2018. And I was and am on contract with Indianapolis public schools to do public relations. And you mentioned the closing of charter schools. I did the PR for the closing of the project school three or four years ago that was vastly underperforming. So I think those are all, and I'm an East Sider and I'm a Capricorn. I don't know. I guess there's anything else. <laughs> Danielle, you're the moral compass of leaders and legends. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to ask about when you mentioned politics is education reform is one of the true purple issues. I could line up five or six high-profile Democrats and five or six high-profile Republicans and stand them next to each other, and they would agree 100% on this issue. Mark Miles, Al Hubbard, Greg Ballard, Bart Peterson, Teresa Lubbers, Krieger Rausch, you, of course. The list goes on and on. Jason Cloth. I mean, it's amazing. Marianne Sullivan, Mike O'Connor. It's amazing how much this issue unites people who would ordinarily be divided by immigration or another issue. Given that what fact, and I think it is a fact, why, what, why was the politics so hard? Why does it continue to be difficult? So I mean, you mentioned some leaders, but the overall public doesn't have maybe as clear an understanding of what's required to make the change. Uh, And so they are susceptible to a lot of misinformation that makes it harder to move things because people get scared and change is scary and change involving your, your kids is especially scary. Um, I think that some of the, the folks that are, uh, against the reforms that have been happening have been very effective politically in making the case against a lot of the types of things that happen. So, um, you know, you'll, we're in a very red state and people typically think that Republicans are more amenable to education reform. But if you talk to legislature legislators here, they'll tell you that it's difficult, even in a state that has the political composition that we do. And so, um, you know, it, I think some of us had hoped that when uh, President Obama embraced reforms in the way that he did, and he was a huge, you know, the two biggest champions in the history of the country for charter schools are Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, that that might really change the narrative. We, by the way, we would have lost our charter law probably in 2009 had it not been for the race to the top competition that the Obama administration put into place that really... I won't go into all the details, but protected our charter school law here in Indiana. Um, but what we're seeing now is actually more polarization on this issue and, and support for charters 
is still very strong among African-Americans, still very strong among Latinos, but is actually dipping among whites. And so the kind of divides that we've had, regrettably, I don't think are going to go away anytime soon. There was a change in the mayoral administration in 2007. How gratified were you? And I'll preface this that, I guess, disclosure number, however many? Eight. <laughs> Eight, I keep count. count. Mm-hmm. So I served as the press secretary for Greg Ballard in the November, December timeframe after he won and before he was inaugurated. And it's something that we brought up with him, as I recall, Chris, when he was on the podcast, and that is the number of people who reached out to me because they knew me and these people didn't know the new mayor of Indianapolis, which is shocking in its own way. He's going to ruin everything. He's going to, he's not going to keep this city growing. I mean, real tough kind of almost accusations. Uh, Clearly they weren't paying attention because I remember in the debate with Mayor Peterson, Ballard went out of his way to praise what was happening in the charter school movement as directed by the 25th floor. The question is, how gratified were you when the administration changed, yet the drive to make education better in the city through the mayor's office remained the same? Very gratified is the short answer. And and really remarkable. Not only did Mayor Ballard continue to push forward with the growth of charter schools, uh, he kept much of the mayor's charter staff on the mayor's personal staff. That's just unprecedented. First of all, I think it says an enormous amount about Greg Ballard as a person and a leader. Uh, And I think he gets great credit for it. I think one of his great strengths just generally is the caliber of people he brought into the administration. Uh, And in that case, I think he believed that those the folks working on the mayor's charter staff were doing a good job. So he kept them regardless of the fact that they worked for his predecessor, whom he just defeated. Um, I also think it was smart because it meant that the work continued to go well. Um, And one of the debates that I one of the things that I loved about Mayor Ballard is he helped me win debates I had with people around the country who said, oh, we're not so sure about this mayoral authorizing. Mayor Peterson's great, but what happens when the successor comes in? And um, not only did he continue, but he really built and grew the charter initiative in a meaningful way and, and made gutsy decisions that at the time, I don't think people really gave credit for. You know, both Mayor Peterson and Mayor Ballard had to close schools that if you just looked at their political interests, they would never have closed the schools that they closed. Uh, but they did it because it was the right thing to do. So it was really gratifying. We just as a city were so lucky that Greg Ballard turned out to be not only a really decent and good person, but such a good mayor when he didn't go through the same vetting process that the typical person who gets elected into that office goes through. So hat tip to Kariga Rausch. And Beth Bray and Christine Marson, who were the core of the mayor's office of charter schools, who were held over. Uh, Quick story before I pass it back to Danielle is uh, I didn't join the Ballard administration until November of 2008. And education reform, education, the drive to improve education was something that I really wanted to talk about a lot. And um, I sent an email to Kriga, not knowing if Kriga was a man or a woman, <laughs> I had no idea. Put me, he put me on his calendar. I walked over there across the hall on 25th floor. Never met him before. We had scheduled a half hour or so. We were about 90 seconds into me just firing questions at him. 
and being absolutely devastated by his brilliance. Yeah. And I smiled and I said, hold on a second. He goes, what? I go, hold on. He goes, Krieger, who's the most polite person in the world, goes, did I do something wrong? And I remember looking at him and I'm like, why don't I know you? Why don't I know who you are? Like, I'm involved in a lot of stuff from a policy and political and PR perspective. I should know who you are. And Krieger, who's black, looked at me and goes, I don't know. And I laughed and I said, I hope you don't tan easily because these TV lights are going to make you a star. And he is a phenomenal talent. And I'm so glad that he has remained here. And to your point, Greg Ballard came in and just could not think more of what Mayor Peterson did in education and the quality of staff that he had. So I remember talking to one of Corriga's professors at IU. I think he hadn't quite gotten his doctorate yet. And he was a big fan of Corriga's and a big talent uh, and was hoping that he would go work for IPS. And I can't remember exactly how I got connected to him, but said, hey, you should go work for the mayor's office. And they hired him. Uh, And you think about the difference that he's made in the lives of so many thousands of students because of the great job he did. And it's just a reminder because a lot of us sometimes can get stuck in our ideologies about what the right way to do it is. And at the end of the day, it's about what's best for kids. And so I I hope that professor uh, is proud of what Kariga did in the mayor's office because it's been extraordinary. He continues to be a great national leader in this work. Absolutely. Danielle? So you you just both were talking about qualities in people that it takes to make a difference in this really challenging education reform space. In the next couple of years, our next governor will appoint our education leader for our state. Um, And I say that specifically, I don't know if we're going to call that person agency head of the Department of Education. Will they be a state superintendent? I don't know what that word will look like in the future. But if you had a say in that, David, what qualities do you think that person will have to have to continue to keep Indiana, Indianapolis on the trajectory that we currently are on? I'd say the most important quality for that role, but I would say this is true, whether it's the state superintendent or the superintendent of IPS or any of the other townships or a teacher or a principal in a school building, is the sincerely held belief that all kids, no matter what their background, no matter what their circumstances, their family situation, all kids, if given the right supports and conditions and great teachers and educators, can excel as well as any other group of kids. And I think one of the sad realities of... American education is that not everybody really deeply shares that belief. And to me, that's the only way to explain how for decades before all these reforms started, you know, we had a situation where thousands and thousands of kids were dropping out of high school every single year, which, um, in today's economy is the equivalent of an economic death sentence. Unfortunately, in some situations it's an actual death sentence. And yet there was just apathy. You know, where was, where were, why weren't people marching in the streets about this, given the consequence it had for those lives? And I think one of the problems we have is that some people kind of think, well, you know, kids from certain backgrounds, we just don't, we can't realistically expect them to perform as well. And so when they don't perform well, it's just kind of, oh, well, that's consistent with what our understanding of what they can do is. And the people who really profoundly change 
education systems have this belief that every single kid can do well and thrive and excel and do whatever it takes to make sure that they do thrive and excel. And you hear this debate sometimes within education. You say, well, if you could just fix poverty, then our, the education system would work better. Well, yes, it would work better if kids didn't come with those kinds of challenges. Um, but every day of the week, I want education leaders who don't say, here are all the problems that I'm inheriting with these kids and woe is me and how do we overcome them? Not to diminish those challenges, they're real. But what I want are people who say every single kid can excel. Every kid can learn. And I think we've had those kinds of leaders in Indianapolis and that has made a big difference. So the most important thing is someone who genuinely believes no matter where the kid is, what the circumstance is, what the challenge is, where they are starting from, all kids can excel. Um, so again, in that same vein, I guess, when you think about the fact that in 2014, the authority was given for really anywhere in the state to have an innovation opportunity. Why do you think Indianapolis was the only city either poised and ready or even interested in doing so at the time? And I don't, I don't know currently if there's others that are in that way in Indiana or if it's still just Indianapolis. Yeah, it's just Indianapolis. So I think it's several factors. One, I think we as a city were thinking about education reform in a different way because of the vibrant charter initiative. Two, we had a mayor who was an out, it was an advocate for this type of work that generated, I think, enthusiasm. Um, we had an organization like the Mind Trust that could play the role of incubating those new schools in partnership with the district and the mayor's office. Other cities don't have that. Uh, and then we had this young superintendent in IPS who just believed in his core, in addition to what I was just saying about all kids learning, that you get better results when you empower educators. He was empowered as a young principal, and I think that just sat with him in a way that it doesn't sit with all of his colleagues around the state. Dr. Farabee. <laughs> Dr. Farabee. Um, and we had, a, we had a strong school board. Uh, we had a reform school board, and that was not an accident. Uh, our local affiliate of Stanford Children, the Indianapolis Chamber of Commerce, and others played an active role in recruiting and supporting candidates in 2012, 2014, 16, and 18. I'll tell you a little story. In 2014, uh, four incumbents on the IPS school board were running for re-election, and they were not very enthusiastic about Innovation Network schools. Uh, all of them were defeated. And in their last board meeting in December of 2014, they called the first Innovation Network School down onto the agenda. It wasn't on the agenda, but they put it on the agenda just so they could vote it down as kind of their last hurrah as they left. So the very first Innovation Network School that was ever presented to the IPS school board was voted down. Now, in January of 2015, when the new board came on, that same school was approved and now is operating and is doing very well. Um, but uh, so, yeah. What next, what needs to happen next for the, like I said, the, the success to continue? Is there new legislation? Is there more community engagement? What, so you're out there talking to other cities to kind of follow in Indianapolis's footsteps, but yet, and we're in great hands, even though you've left us for, you know, leadership in the city fund. What does Brandon need to be thinking about? What does, what is the next mayor, the next governor? What, what do we need to be making sure is it, is, it, is currently in existence? Is, can be continued or new legislation that should should be created? Well, first of all, just say a word about Brandon. I mean, mm -hmm. he's just spectacular and is doing... And Brandon Brown is the current um, CEO, CEO my yes. uh, predecessor as CEO of the Mind Trust. And I just couldn't be more thrilled with how he's doing. He's made 
really dramatic improvements to the organization. I think it's just going to keep getting better under his leadership. So uh, couldn't be more thrilled. I mean, I think it'd be nice for the country to have more Brandon Browns. That would be Amen. something uh, that would be terrific. Um, you know, we're in a good position in that we don't need some sort of big reform legislation to continue to move things forward. I think the most important thing is to keep executing on the opportunity that we have in front of us. Uh, I do think probably the most important challenge that the Mind Trust and IPS and the charter sector face right now is just continuing to improve the overall instruction delivered at these schools. So they're doing well, but we need to continue to get much, much better. Uh, that's been a big push of what the Mind Trust has been doing. Our organization, the City Fund, has provided the Mind Trust with significant funding to do that. And so just getting better instructionally. There's some things um, legislative that would be legislatively that would be nice. Charters still get a third less funding than traditional district schools and their public schools and should have the same funding as any other public school. And so that would be important. Um, we'll never get to a point where we say we've adequately engaged the community. Uh, huge progress has been made, um, really starting in 2013 when Camila Shahid Diallo joined the Mind Trust and really transformed the organization. I always say there are two people who I hired when I was there that really transformed the organization because they were just so good. Brandon was one, and Camila and the community engagement work uh, was another. So that's going to have to continue to be a focus. Shannon Williams, who used to be at the Indianapolis Recorder, has succeeded Camila and is fabulous, and, and they're doing a lot of exciting work there. And so that's uh, important. And then, but, you know, the overall environment uh, is really good. And, and I think there's pretty much every other state in the union would love to have the policy environment that we have here. Mm-hmm. Talk about, I guess, now the city fund. So how are you taking the Mind Trust model and helping inform the city fund and what are they trying to do and what other cities out there are, are ready to take on what Indianapolis took on? Yeah, so uh, the city fund was really an outgrowth of the uh, person who was leading the Arnold Foundation's education work, who was my counterpart in New Orleans. And of course, New Orleans is this amazing story, kind of the story of uh, education reform uh, at the city level in the country. They're basically 100% chartered now. Post-Katrina. Uh, Post-Katrina and are dramatically better than uh, what they were before by huge margins and really were our model uh, as we were doing this work. We, we went about it differently. We had a different approach. Um, but the basic model that they had was the model that we adopted here. And so I have the good fortune now to work with the person who led that work in New Orleans and several others uh, from around the country who've done amazing things, working to start new school networks or to do innovative work inside school districts. Um, and so what our belief is, our, our goal is to find cities that we think not only can we create great new schools in, but we can actually transform the city's education system, um, and invest in support the local nonprofits that are driving that change. And we're now invested in about 12 to 15 cities and we want to continue to grow. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran business enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Aaron Shaler, a mortgage broker with Grandview Lending, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly 
neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Uh, the names uh, Brandon Brown and Shannon Williams from the Mind Trust were mentioned just a few seconds ago. They are both going to be guests on the Leaders and Legends podcast in the future. I'll have to bone up because Brandon Brown's pretty damn smart. And uh, Shannon Williams uh, is a great, great friend of mine. She is terrific. I uh, went to Broad Ripple High School. I had the great fortune of going to Howe. Went to four IPS schools. And IPS, when I was there, I graduated in 1986. Howe High School was one of the best high schools in the city. It was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, but it lost its way, clearly. And some of it is its fault, own fault. And some of it is, for example, the collapse of the industrial base on the east side of town where a lot of working class families fled and never came back in the growth of the suburbs. But as I tell my education clients when we've done media, there is no education reform without accountability. You can't have one without the other. And Dr. Farabee, to your point, embraced that wholeheartedly. When you specifically think about IPS of the, in the last, let's say, 20 years, and you think about where it could be without charter schools, you mentioned earlier it's the best thing that happened to IPS. I, compl- I 1,000% agree with that. What would you say to the people who fought you tooth and nail the last couple of decades as you tried to create these enhanced education choices, opportunities, empowerment? I think I'd say look at the results. I mean, I would focus um, my comments on how these schools are doing. We've had the benefit now of having four independent Stanford University studies that have looked at both the performance of the charter schools and the innovation network schools, and they've found that charter schools and innovation network schools get between 50 and 100 days of additional learning and reading and math compared to their traditional district counterparts. When you think about a 180-day school calendar, that's a pretty remarkable achievement. Obviously, that's not every school, but that's kind of a an average. So I would say, let's see how these schools are doing today. I do sometimes think about some of the folks who were particularly at the very beginning, who were very negative. When we had to take our schools to get ratified, the first group of charter schools to get ratified by the city council, um, city county council, a woman came up to me that night and said, you hurt children tonight because we were advancing these charter schools. And I'd be curious to know when she looked at the results, what she thinks today. And, And I understand that, you know, there's also people get nervous by change. And so I'm sympathetic to people who might have raised questions. But uh, I think if you look at how this has impacted kids in our community, it makes a pretty powerful case. Let me tell a quick story before I ask you another question. And then before we get to the five questions, I want to make sure that Danielle has time to bring up Girl Scouts STEM school. The late, great Amos Brown. He's terrific and he's missed. But I got the sense that he was a little late to the Ed Reform movement. And when I was in the mayor's office, he wrote a column in the recorder that was not supportive. I called him up and said, um, why don't you have Krieger Rausch and why don't you have us come on and talk about what this means for basically the urban core? And we had on the principal of Tinley at the same time. 
And Amos says, okay, bring them on. And what I witnessed sitting in the room, not saying anything, was an absolute tour de force from both an implementation and a policy perspective that I'm convinced changed Amos Brown's mind about education reform that very day, that hour. And I'm forever grateful to him for letting us have the opportunity. That's the preamble to a question of when you see people who were again you and now they're for you, what do you say to them? Thank you. I'm, I know you're a very humble guy and you're one of the most respected people in this city. So, you know, any sort of I told you show so wouldn't come out of your mouth. Are you grateful? How do you handle folks who thought one way and now think another? So I think less about the individuals who might have raised concerns or uh, been opposed to what we were doing. And what I'm more gratified by is how the community is embracing the reforms that are happening. Again, it's not to say that everybody is embracing it. But as I look around the country and see the enormous pushback to much more insignificant change than what we've had here Uh, And then I look at what's happening here and how much the community is behind this. Uh, That's what really gets me excited and gratified that the community is saying this is something that's working well. Uh, Obviously, just the most recent example was the strong support that new IPS superintendent Alicia Johnson got to replace Dr. Farabee, who was the architect inside IPS of the Innovation Network School work. And so, you know, there are just lots of examples about how the community is saying this is working and we want more of it. You mentioned something earlier about great civic leaders coming together. And in my litany of people, I unpardonably left off the name of Fred Klipsch, who is a graduate of Howe High School and a member of the IPS Hall of Fame. And he's been one of the leaders. What do you think it is about education reform and the need to do better that brings all these folks together, high powered, successful of different parties, different genders, different races, but you can really, the mind trust specifically and you, David Harris and now Brandon Brown can convene a group of people together like no other in this city. Why do you think that it happened that way, that they they cottoned to what was happening in this particular area of the city? Yeah, I think it, it probably is different for different folks, but it probably boils down to a recognition that the single best way you can transform someone's life is to give them a great education. And all of the kind of social conditions about which we worry and struggle as a society get better when people are better educated. And so if you care about improving people's lives, this is a great way to do it. I think a lot of people probably are motivated by their own experience in education and saw how that transformed them. Uh, But we have been incredibly lucky by the caliber of people who've been involved in this work. I got to know John Mutz, who I know was a previous guest of yours, who was one of the original charter board members, the first cohort when they were approved. And you think about having a leader like John Mutz, who's done so much for this city saying, I'm going to dedicate my time to helping to get a school launched. Just remarkable. And and again, we have so many people who were like that. John Neighbors, what he did for the Tinley School is extraordinary. Tinley wouldn't be Tinley 
if it weren't for John Neighbors. And we've Crystal had Dehan. Crystal DeHaan. There's a long list. We've had so many great nonprofits really put their resources and expertise behind this. Jim McClellan and Goodwill and Indiana Black Expo and Joyce Rogers and Harrison Center for the Arts and Fairbanks Hospital and many, many others. So um, we just have a lot of people who are passionate about making the city better and know that this is this maybe the single best way to transform someone's life. Speaking of which, of a great leader who wants to transform education. Boy, that's set right I, on the I, t- yeah. set right on the T for you, wow. Danielle. That's gracious. Talk about your STEM school. No, I, I, I hope someday, my thought was, I hope someday to be added to your list. So yeah. the Girl Scouts is excited to partner. And um, our goal is a launch of 2021. I'm hoping for a mayor's office charter um, for an all-girls K-8 STEM academy. Um, STEM, as well as women and girl leadership, is what the Girl Scouts stands for for over 100 years. And we can't think of a better way to put our money where our mouth is than in a school that supports all girls. And um, so we think it's a fairly innovative idea for our community, and we're excited to be a part of it. It's so great that that you were doing this for so many reasons. You obviously have such a great reputation in the community and throughout the country, but it's hard to run an autonomous school and to be able to have a strong nonprofit partner that can help provide support will make an enormous difference to the overall quality of that school. And there's so many things that you have to deal with that are not kind of core education issues that if you don't do them well, then it compromises the ability of the school to succeed. Thank you. And I, yeah. I said, we're excited and we, um, we only hope for the best. And my, if I had 10 minutes with you off the air, it would be where, you know, yeah. that's the biggest question yeah. and it's about quality seats. And so right now we're in the process of what part of our city would benefit um, the most from this opportunity. And obviously it can pull from all over, but we want to make sure it's a place where families can have great access and, and have a great opportunity for quality seats. So great. Very exciting. So my last question, actually, Robert, was going to be, what does success look like? You know, you mentioned there's a lot of successes we can point to now. Yeah. But ultimately, what does success look like in your mind several years down the road in the future? So I think success has to look like every kid getting an opportunity to access a great school. And I know that's we're a long way from that. We, we've made huge progress, but we still have a very long way to go. Um, but if you believe that every child has innate value that needs to be fully developed. Um, It's hard to imagine them doing that if they don't have access to a great high quality education. And we've got to keep working until every single kid has that opportunity. Before I ask the five questions, ask him what scares him. What are you scared of David Harris? Uh, I, you know, we talked about politics. I'm scared that the politics will interfere with our ability to continue to drive change and that it will become the, the divisiveness that we are experiencing as a country on a whole range of issues is starting to seep into education, not so much here, but in other cities. And I worry that that will compromise our ability to continue to make the progress that we have and that people won't look at the evidence as much as kind of a, an ideological position. And so that that would be my biggest worry. Do you think the average public, because you've talked about, you know, the kind of the key to the success is the, the school level autonomy and the empowering the educators and the leaders. Yes. Do you think the average public person understands that the traditional public school doesn't have autonomy? Do you think they think that that exists and so therefore they don't understand why this is challenging? I think we sometimes, this is one of the weaknesses of those of us in education reform, is we talk in wonky terms like autonomy and empowering educators. And the typical parent is thinking more about 
the experience that their child is having. And so um, I think maybe another worry is their, the kind of the disconnect, the way we talk about things and the way parents experience them could make it harder for, for us to make the case for why this change needs to happen. Uh, the good news is that parents are responding to what's happening by choosing to go to these schools. And interestingly, the Innovation Network schools, while new, have across the board on average seen an increase enrollment of 17%. So that says parents are speaking with their feet and with their actions. Um, but no, I, I think the way we talk about it is often not does not resonate with the average parent. A former mayor, Bart Peterson, made that point recently and received an award for the Mind Trust, and he was in the media for saying that the uh, charter school world and its permutations need to be more aggressive in its messaging and media and public relations. Would you agree with that statement? Absolutely. It's a it's a huge opportunity for growth, to put it in a positive way. My business card's right there. All right. <laughs> Why do you think, the last question I want to ask is, I have a client, had a client uh, who was, uh, it's an education organization not located in Indiana. And the very first time I met with the CEO, he said something to me that I'd never thought of. And it's a testament, quite frankly, to you as much as anyone else. He said the entire country is looking at Indiana. The entire country, the education, the people who want to change education, they're looking at Indianapolis. Why are they looking and why should they be looking? Yeah. So I think it's a a number of things. Obviously it's, it wouldn't be a good story if the performance of the schools wasn't going well. Um, And I could say a lot of things, but I'm going to focus on one because it's really unique, I think, to the way Indianapolis does things. This collaboration that now exists among the mayor's office, IPS and the mind trust is unprecedented nationally to have the kind of reform community partnering so closely with the with the large urban district is just not happening anywhere else and it it makes the idea of what we were talking about before serving every single kid actually seem attainable because you're combining kind of the the best way to educate kids by empowering educators with the resources that districts control and if you combine those together, you can actually think about getting to scale. It, it's very hard to imagine a city chartering its entire city without a partnership with the district that controls all the facilities and transportation and those kinds of things. And so the fact that people get along here so well and are so collaborative is unique. I was just at an event in Boston a couple of weeks ago and uh, former education secretary John King, who was in for that Mind Trust event, was just going on and on to this group of mayors from around the country about how Indianapolis is doing it right and how this collaboration is so unique. Um, and so it's uh, it, it gives us a really special opportunity. Well, one of the things that you will hopefully glean from the Leaders and Legends podcast is Indianapolis is doing a lot of things right. Yes. And it's great for a city that just 50 years ago was, as P.E. McAllister described it so well, an oval in a cornfield has come to lead 
the country in so many areas and yep. be seen and to have a reputation for excellence. Um, Danielle, ask the five questions. All right. All right. This is big time. He's letting me ask his special five questions. (laughs) Well, it's an education-themed show, even though the five questions aren't. All right. So these are totally off off of education. What was your first job? My first job, I worked uh, on a construction crew when I was 15 years old. And within the first two hours on the job, I incapacitated my boss for the rest of the summer. (laughs) I I was a little klutzy. (laughs) You carrying a beam? It's we were we were it's kind of a long story, but but he and I both fell off the scaffolding we were on together. So. Oh gosh! All right. Which so high you school moved did on. you? Which high school did you go to? I don't think we asked. Uh, so I went to Broderpool for two years, and then I went to Culver for I graduated from Culver. Oh, good for you! Congrats. Yeah. So. All right. What was your first concert? <laughs> I think I was nine years old. I went to Willie Nelson at the Indiana State Fair. Okay. If you could suggest a book for our listeners to read, which book would you recommend? I bet Robert would agree with this. Uh, Robert Caro. And have you read those LBJ books? Robert Caro has four books on LBJ's working on the fifth that are just remarkable. And they are not hagiographical either. (laughs) I mean, they're, it's a raw look. LBJ was a formidable figure. Yeah. All right. If you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, what event would you choose? Uh, That's a good question. Um, well, I could say the, uh, crucifixion of Christ, which would sound very morbid, but it would answer a lot of questions for a lot of people. More than the resurrection? Maybe the, that would be much happier. Yes. The resurrection. I'll take that. (laughs) We're an upbeat podcast. Yeah. (laughs) And the last of the five questions, if you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record just to chat, whom would you choose? So my answer would be David McCullough, who's one of the, my favorite historians, mm-hmm. who I've actually gotten to know. And so I've had that experience. Yeah. He did an event for the Mind Trust, and he has a place on Martha's Vineyard where my family or my wife's family has a place. And so the last couple of summers we've gotten together. It's been spectacular. Very good. That's terrific. That's terrific. Well, the point of the Leaders and Legends podcast is to uh, detail and have conversations with people who have or are making a difference in this city. David Harris not only fits that category, he leads that category. Get a bunch of Republicans and Democrats together, and I guarantee you they'll agree on one thing, and that's David Harris has changed this city for the better. Thank you, David, for coming on today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Veteran Strategies.